Turn to James chapter 5. We started in February looking at this little book that was written by James. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the pastor at the first church in Jerusalem. And today we're coming to the final word from James, this pastor, to his scattered flock, the dispersion. And the theme of this letter has been the fact that genuine faith, authentic faith, changes everything. It affects every part of a believer's life. This faith that James advocates for, this James that, or this faith that, he, that he's teaching us about, it's not just a mystical force. It's not simply an emotional feeling. This faith is real confidence in God, a trust in Christ that is so strong it actually changes how we live. We've seen throughout the book that faith changes how we respond to trials. It affects how we treat other people. It shapes our response to God's word. It controls how we speak. It controls how we respond even to injustice. And it shapes how we pray. This book is intensely practical. It's got more imperatives, more commands per word than any other book in the New Testament. You can't read through this book without being confronted by the question, does your faith control every aspect of your life? As we've seen, one of James's primary concerns, located right in the heart of this book in chapter 2, is that people might claim to have faith, but that their lives would contain no good works. He warns us that this kind of faith is dead, it is lifeless, and it cannot save you. James was concerned for the faith of the people that were part of his church. He cares about the truth, and he cares that his people walk in the truth, that they remain in the truth, that their hearts would be changed and sustained by God's grace. He cared that the gospel would bear lasting fruit in their lives. And that's why he's writing this letter. And he wraps up this book by appealing to his readers and by extension in God's providence to us today, appealing to us that we would join him in demonstrating concern for the faith of other people. I want to read our text this morning, the final two verses in James. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, We do so recognizing that it is true, it is timeless, that your word speaks with all authority. So Lord, open our hearts to receive by faith the truth that you have revealed in your word. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would direct our faith towards obedience, and that you'd be glorified as your word nourishes us, challenges us, and strengthens us to live the life that you call us to. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, as we've sung this morning, the grace that takes our sin, and we are grateful that this grace, after forgiving us, now empowers us to grow and become more like Christ. So, Lord, give us an eagerness this morning to receive all that you would show us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The final mark of genuine faith is that it demonstrates concern for the faith of others, and it does this by pursuing prodigals. That's the final mark of faith that James gives us here. It demonstrates concern for the faith of others by pursuing those who wander, pursuing prodigals. 
the sad reality that many of us know all too well is that there will be some who wander. There will be some who choose to walk away. To wander from the truth here, as James refers to it, it can refer either to straying from theological truth, embracing error, or it can refer to straying from biblical morality and walking into sin. So it involves both doctrine and deeds. If you remember, James calls the gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, the word of truth. We don't want to wander from that truth. John writes that if we walk in darkness, committing sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. So truth is something that is to be known and something that must be believed and something that must be lived out. And this wandering, it can sometimes be inadvertent or it may be, for some, intentional. It can be active rebellion or it can be a passive drifting away. For example, those of you who are parents may have experienced this, but you can be out you know, for a walk with your small children, and one of your children may wander off the path because they see a butterfly that catches their eye. But you might have another child who walks off the path because you told him not to, and he simply doesn't want to obey. But both are really wandering off the path. Likewise, in the church, there will be some who will become distracted. There will be others who are deceived and still others who will simply rebel and choose to walk away. How should we as believers respond when we see these kinds of things happening? Well, James instructs us. We are not to respond with condemnation, not to respond with apathy, not to respond with feelings of despair. No, genuine faith demonstrates concern for the faith of others by pursuing them, pursuing the prodigal, seeking to bring them back. If you have genuine faith, then you won't be able to to look upon the shipwreck of someone else's faith with indifference. No, you will instead pursue them. I want to look in this text at three reasons why we should demonstrate this kind of concern for the faith of others. First of all, genuine faith is committed to the community of faith, to the church. Genuine faith is committed to the community of faith, which is the church. Look in verse 19. He says, first of all, My brothers, my brothers, over and over again, 15 times in fact, James has used this title of brothers in addressing his readers. As he concludes this letter to the flock, James once more appeals to them by emphasizing this common bond that they share as children in the family of God. This is their identity, and it's what binds them together. This is a term of relationship, of love, of affection, of commitment and loyalty and belonging. To call them brothers, this is more than just shorthand that's convenient for addressing the group. It implies a personal commitment, not just to the church as a whole, not just to the church as an institution, but to the individuals who make up the whole, to the people in the church. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you It's very clear here as he says, as he speaks about those who are among us, that James has the local assembly in view. James isn't just referring to the invisible church or, or the universal church, all believers around the world. He says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, he's pointing out that what follows here deals with the local assembly of professing believers, those who gather together to worship Christ and share in the Lord's Supper. 
This is important because there are many people today who severely undervalue the local church. But biblically, the local assembly and the people in it matter greatly. James is burdened for the local church and the people in it. James is passionate for the local church and the people in it. And he's committed to the local church and to the faith and the spiritual health of the people in it. Genuine faith is committed to the community of faith. Now, the perseverance in faith that James has talked about throughout this book, especially in chapter 1, verse 12, James is telling us that this is a community project. We resist sin and we resist error and seek to be faithful to Christ side by side with other Christians. This is simply part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We love Christ and we love his people. Jesus loves the church and so must we. And loving the church means loving the people in the church and seeking their good. And we love people best when we care about the state of their soul. Showing concern for the faith of others is an essential expression of our love for one another. For instance, if I, I have a lot of squirrels at my house, and they tear up my yard all the time. If I see a squirrel run in, into the road, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I'm happy to see them you know, get hit by the car. But if one of my children runs out into the road, it's a far different story. I'm going to do everything in my power, everything within my ability to rescue them from oncoming danger. Because I don't love squirrels, but I love my children. And it's an expression of love to care greatly about their well-being. This love that we are to have for one another in the church is essential. It's essential. If you love the true church, you will love the local expression of the true church, and it means you'll love the people in the church. And this, my friend, is not optional. It's not optional to love other people in the church. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When a brother wanders from the truth, love seeks to bring him back. Love will be willing to point out his error. Love will confront his sin and call him to repentance. Perhaps the reason that some of you cannot imagine going to someone else in the church and confronting them about their sin is because you do not have a deep commitment to the body of Christ. Your love for the church is deficient. Your Christianity is simply a personal experience. It's, it's an individual faith or maybe just an intellectual position. And perhaps the reason you like to come to church is because it adds something nice to your personal experience. Some friends, perhaps some interesting teaching, some social outlets for your kids, but you don't see the church as your spiritual family. Let me ask you to consider, do you have a heart that is committed to Christ's program in this age, to the local church? 
Are you committed to its mission? Is the mission of the church something you personally take ownership of? Are the joys and sorrows of the church inseparable from your own? Is the purity and health of the church something you feel personally responsible for? If you are committed to the church, then the wandering of a brother will deeply concern you and it will move you to action. You will seek to pursue the prodigal and bring them back. Genuine faith is committed to the community of faith, to the church. Secondly, genuine faith also takes seriously the future judgment of sinners. James 5.19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, notice what James says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. We'll stop right there. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. If you've been with us through this series, we've pointed out multiple times that James always has the big picture in mind. He's always zooming out to get perspective on what really matters. And eternity is always in his view, whether it be justice for the wicked or reward and rest for those who persevere. James is always sort of looking towards the finish line. And here James points out that whoever brings back a sinner saves his soul from death. And what that shows us is that there is a lot at stake here. And that's an understatement. Because the death that James refers to here is not simply physical death. Everyone's going to face that. Um, No one escapes that. James is here referring to the eternal death of hell. Drowning in God's righteous and holy wrath forever. That is eternal death. What John calls the second death. And the only escape from this death, the only escape from judgment is faith in Christ But it's important we understand that faith in Christ is not confined to a one-time prayer. Faith in Christ is not just a temporary feeling. It is an abiding trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. It is an abiding hope in the truth of the gospel. And such faith must persevere. It must continue to the end. The ultimate proof of faith is perseverance. We saw this in James chapter 1, verse 12. You can look at it. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is given to those who persevere to the end, whose faith is proven to be genuine by the fact that they do not walk away from Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul writes, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The proof of genuine faith is its perseverance. What are we to make of those who at one point profess to have faith and then later walk away and wander from the truth? 
Well, John tells us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not, or they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The wanderer, the one who wanders from the truth, whether that is rejecting the doctrinal truths of the gospel or whether it's, it's rejecting biblical morality and continuing in unrepentant sin, the person who wanders, if they persist in their sin or persist in their error, they are proving the condition of their soul, that they are lost and without Christ and destined for death, eternal death in hell. That's why John MacArthur calls this passage nothing less than a call to evangelism within the church. You see, it's necessary for us as believers to embrace our role in appealing to those who wander from the faith because by their wandering, they reveal that they may not have genuine faith. And if that is the case, if they don't possess genuine faith, then they are in grave danger. Loving the brothers means we embrace mutual responsibility for one another and that we care for the soul. As we saw in the previous passage last week, we are to confess our sins to one another as we make war against the flesh. We're to enlist the prayers of our brothers and sisters as we seek victory over sin. And when one wanders, we pursue. The eternal destiny of their soul is to be the concern of the church. We are each other's business. Now this goes very much against the values of our society today. The individualism that stresses um, that everyone has the freedom to think and believe and say and do as they please as long as it's not hurting anyone else. We live in a fiercely individualistic society and, and our culture places ultimate value on personal freedom and the freedom to pursue your own desires. And our culture demonizes any suspected attempt to limit that personal freedom. And because of this, if you pursue someone who's wandering, your appeals and your warnings may not always be received well. And some of us have experienced this firsthand. And perhaps this is what makes some of you hesitant. When you think about pursuing the prodigal, you fear what they may say or do in response. You're worried about how they might receive your efforts to love them and to bring them back. And sadly, you may be more horrified by social awkwardness than you are by eternal damnation. James is trying to give us perspective. Say, listen, what matters is the eternal destiny of their soul, and that is worth any momentary discomfort. It is worth rejection. It is worth hard words. It is worth the risk for you to go and say what needs to be said. James says eternal judgment is coming and we need to take it seriously enough to plead with sinners to repent. We must not ever allow personal discomfort or a sinner's resistance to keep us from obeying the commands of Christ and lovingly pursuing the prodigals. We are to pursue prodigals because we love the church and because we take judgment seriously. We love the individual sinner. And thirdly, Genuine faith finds joy in the restoration of sinners. The third reason we should pursue the prodigals is genuine faith finds joy 
in the restoration of sinners. Look at the end of verse 20. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This closing statement by James shows us God's mercy to sinners. God renews faith and forgives sin. And that means that there is hope. There's hope for those who wander. Because of Christ's atoning sacrifice for sinners, prodigals can be restored. We love the story from Luke chapter 15. It says this of the prodigal son in verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. That parable shows us the character of our God, and it shows us what our heart ought to be towards prodigals as well. This message of hope and forgiveness is what we are to communicate with those who wander. We're to appeal to them and to tell them of God's love and God's mercy that is available to them in Christ. And we ought to have the heart of the Father who is eager to receive such sinners again. There is still hope while they live here on earth. James says, if someone turns back to the truth, whether it be repenting of moral sin or repenting of doctrinal deviation, says if they turn, if they repent, if they come back, then their sin is covered. And covered sin is forgiven sin. And with forgiveness comes joy. I love Psalm 32, what David writes in verses one and two. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When James says that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering saves his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins, he's pointing us to the reality of joy of grace, of mercy, and of forgiveness. There's great joy in the covering of sin by God's grace. There's joy for the sinner who is now experiencing God's mercy. And there's joy for the one who has lovingly pursued the prodigal, who has desired to see their repentance, desired to see them reconciled with God because what has been desired is now happening. And there's great relief and joy. We've gained back our brother. The one we were concerned for is now restored. And consider this. If you're the one pursuing the prodigal and they return and their sins are forgiven, that means you have gotten to experience the incredible privilege 
of participating in God's gracious purposes of redemption and sanctification. It's an amazing thing that God often uses sinners like you and me to rescue other sinners and to bring them back from their sin. He uses us despite our imperfections as instruments in his hands to accomplish his purposes of redemption and sanctification in the lives of other people. And really, this is not just one task we're supposed to occasionally do. This is something that describes who we are and what we are to be. The Apostle Paul describes himself as an ambassador for Christ, as a slave of Christ, as a jar made out of clay in which God displays his glory, specifically in the ministry of the gospel. It is a great privilege for us to participate in God's gracious workings in the lives of other sinners. The heart that possesses genuine faith is thrilled at this, finds great joy in this. For the Christian, there's no greater joy than seeing the same transformation that we have experienced through the gospel, to see that happen in someone else's life, to see the same mercy and grace that we have tasted, enjoyed by a fellow sinner. Forgiven sinners rejoice when other sinners are forgiven, just like the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner is redeemed. It should fill us with wonder and joy to think that God delights to use us, that he uses us in rescuing others from their sin. This is an offer of joy and a reward that should motivate us to pursue the prodigals, those who, li- who love Christ and those who love the people who belong to Christ. We are to find joy in such things. I love what the Apostle John writes, 3 John chapter 1, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's a joy that we are all to share in and to desire and to pursue as we seek to turn back sinners from their wandering. And really, ultimately, we are to pursue prodigals and rejoice in their restoration because that's what our Heavenly Father does. That's what God does, and He has done it for us. There have been points in all of our lives where we have wandered into sin, and God has graciously pursued us, graciously convicted us of our guilt, and graciously granted us forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, and brought us back. God does that for us. We are to do that for others as well. As those who have received this grace and experience God's redemption and reconciliation, we eagerly seek the same for others and we find joy in it. There's joy in it. Joy in the heart of the wanderer, joy in our hearts, and really joy in the heart of our Heavenly Father. It pleases Him when we do this. So my friends, do not be surprised when some wander. It's going to happen. Even if some will wander away permanently. We know that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of the 12. We know Paul was forsaken by Demas, a trusted fellow minister. And every church has some in it 
who have a great need, even a need for salvation. And they may be in great danger. We are to pursue them, to pursue them with the hope that is found in Christ. If that describes you this morning, if you are someone who maybe is in the church but does not possess genuine faith because you're not trusting in the truth of the gospel, and this is borne out because you're not walking in the truth, or perhaps if you're someone who has wandered away, you're not part of the church, but God has brought you to listen to this word today, I want to appeal to you and urge you and do what James is telling me to do. I want to urge you to turn from your sin and come to Christ. Come to Christ. Be done with your destructive and deadly pride and come to Jesus. The repentance that Christ Jesus wants to see in you is shown beautifully in James chapter four, verses seven through 10. It says this, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. If you have wandered from the truth, my prayer is that today the Holy Spirit would bring conviction, that your heart would be broken and that you would turn to Christ and believe the promise that if you humble yourself before him, confessing your sin and asking for his mercy, that he will lift you up. He will restore you. And if you've never known Christ, then this faith and repentance is the only way you can receive salvation. It's the only way that you can escape eternal death. And Christ beckons you to come today. The Father waits with open arms to welcome you today. So do not refuse this offer of grace. Do not refuse our pleas for you to come and be reconciled to God. To my Christian brothers and sisters, are you committed to the community of faith? Are you committed enough to care about the people who wander from the truth? Are you so shaken by the reality of future judgment that you will plead with rebels to lay down their arms and run to Christ in repentance? Do you find such joy in the restoration of sinners that you eagerly hold out to them the message of mercy and forgiveness through the cross? Do you pursue them for the sake of the church and for the sake of their soul? This is the final mark of genuine faith that we find in James's letter. And I want to just underscore the fact that this is not just the duty of an involved church member, although it is that. In fact, we spell out this exact responsibility in our church's constitution and in our membership covenant, that we are accountable to one another and that we practice loving church discipline. This is something we're committed to as members at this church. But this is more than just the duty of a church member. This is the sign of a living, breathing faith that loves Christ and loves Christ's bride and is passionate about her purity, passionate about her spiritual health. This is the mark of a heart that knows the reality of future judgment and is bent on seeing souls saved from that eternal death in hell. This is the pursuit of joy by the person who has tasted and seen 
just how good God is and has experienced the cleansing of sin that comes through Christ's blood. This is the mark of a heart that rejoices to extend the offer of mercy to those who are in in need of reconciliation with God. If this is absent from your life, that says something about the quality and the genuineness of your faith. May we be used by God as his instruments of grace in this church as we seek to pursue those who wander. And may God be glorified to renew and restore the faith of sinners as we proclaim Christ to them and offer them the hope that is found in his gospel. Heavenly Father, we confess that too often we allow our fear and our apathy to drown out the love that we ought to have for our brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, forgive us for seeing temporary discomforts and social awkwardness and relational conflict as somehow being a worse proposition than eternal death in hell. Lord, help us to see the severity of what's going on in the soul of one who wanders. I pray, God, that we would know what James tells us, that whoever whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Lord, we confess that we, all of us, are sinners, and none of us can pursue another on the basis of our own righteousness. We pursue others because you command us to and because you've forgiven us of our sins. And we simply want to extend that mercy to others and warn them of the danger that comes when they choose to walk down the path that leads to destruction. That path is broad, and many are those who go down it. God, our desire is that you would use us, use those at Redemption Hill to be messengers of mercy, to rescue sinners, to turn them away from that path, and to point them to you, the one who forgives and renews and redeems and restores sinners. And God, we thank you. We thank you that you have done that for us, that you have rescued our souls from death, a fate that we could have never escaped on our own. We are all debtors to your mercy. And so we give you praise and honor and glory. We worship you and thank you for the unfathomable grace that you've shown us. So Lord, use this text to instruct us in the way that you would have us to go, that we might demonstrate our faith and give expression to our love for you as we seek to obey these commands. We thank you for this book, and we thank you for for inspiring James to write it, for guiding his hand, and for preserving it throughout the ages so that our church today might be shaped, so that we individually as believers might have our faith challenged and purified and strengthened. We pray that your word would find its mark in our hearts, and that it would have its intended effect to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.